Welcome to Approach the Bench, where we interview some of the leading jurists in the country about the work of judging and important issues within the judicial system. I'm Kara Bayliss, a features reporter here at Law360, and on this month's episode of Approach the Bench, we talk with Justice Terry Jackson, presiding justice of California's first appellate district, Division Three. Since the start of her career, Justice Jackson has been a pioneer. As an assistant district attorney, she launched San Francisco's first offender prostitution program, and she forged new ground in elder abuse prosecutions. As a San Francisco Superior Court judge, she wrote case management orders that are now used across the state. And as a presiding justice on California's Court of Appeal, she helped implement the state's judicial mentor program, which seeks to improve geographic, racial, and gender representation on the bench by mentoring district judges and attorneys. Justice Jackson herself knows how daunting it is to be a trailblazer. She has frequently been the first over the course of her career. The first woman to head a homicide unit in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, the first Black woman to serve on a San Francisco Superior Court, and the first Black woman to serve on the first appellate district. She spoke with us about her storied career and how it's influenced her to help other would-be judges. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. So Justice Jackson, thank you so much for speaking with us. I was wondering if, first of all, you could talk a bit about the problem that you're seeking to address with the Judicial Mentorship Program. First, I'd like to talk about the Judicial Mentorship overall, the California Judicial Mentorship Program. We have it at the trial court level where we're trying to attract attorneys to consider themselves as uh, judicial officers in the state of California. It was um, then develop into the appellate under the same principles, demystifying what we do as judges. And it is to attract women, people of color, geographic situations where they are not sitting on our bench. And because everybody makes up the population, the parties who come before us. So our bench should reflect California's rich, diverse population economically, socially, uh, racially, gender, and um, sexual orientation, it all should be reflective on our bench. It doesn't detract from the quality of our judicial bench. To the contrary, we're bringing in people who will, in fact, heighten or enrich our judiciary. I mean, there must be many qualified attorneys and lower court judges out there who are women and people of color. What's stopping them? from seeking or getting these appellate roles? You know, this is probably something that we'll, we can all go into a social history of it. Or, um, But why haven't we attracted people? And why shouldn't people apply? Maybe because they don't see the bench reflecting and looking um, like them. Maybe because there is this misconception that those who get appointed, be it on the trial court level or in our appellate to our Supreme Court, you have to know someone. You have to be of a certain club or a certain school and so forth. So what we are trying to eliminate is that feeling. Is it going to go away completely? Not completely, but at least by seeing someone who looks like me, from my background, born and raised in Daly City, California, went to public school. People who could see, okay, Terry Jackson has a similar background as I have. 
and Terry Jackson was a trial judge and ultimately on the Court of Appeal, that they will feel that way too. So why are people not applying? Because one, maybe they don't know enough about how our judicial system works, how the appointment process happens. And that is what the program is designed to do, is to talk about the application process. And when you submit your name through the application, going through the um, JSAC committee and then the Jenny committee, people don't know that. Lawyers don't understand that. Even judges, they, they understand for the appointment to their bench, but even to be appointed to the California Court of Appeal or to even sit as a pro tem, a lot of people don't know that. And why shouldn't they? Because we represent or we sit on the bench of the people. They should know exactly how do we make our decisions? How do we get appointed? All of those things people don't know. And if you don't know, you won't apply. So that's what this program is supposed to do. And I hate to use a cliche, but it really is true. Demystify the process. Why should it be a mystery? Is that what you mean by mentoring? I mean, how do you how do you mentor someone to become a justice? Mentoring can be many ways, you know, from telling attorneys and judges what we do here in the Court of Appeal. That could be doing outreach. Mentoring can be one-on-one. It could be group. Mentoring can also be, let me talk to you about what you're doing and how I got here. And my path to being appointed to the California Court of Appeal may not necessarily be your path. And there are many paths in which one can do it. You can be a direct appointment or you can be an elevation. Mentoring also is to explain what we do. Once a person knows what we do and how we do it, it may or may not be the fit for them. You know, there are a lot of trial judges who, and I was probably one of them. I enjoyed being a trial judge, and I did not think about putting my name in until later on into my career. And that's okay, because some people want to be in the courtroom. And one thing I have to say, as much as I love what I'm doing, What's most important to me is being a judicial officer. I also miss the interaction with the jury. And a lot of people, a lot of judges especially, love that, as well as attorneys I've spoken to about putting their names in for either the Court of Appeal or Superior Court. And they'll tell me they love being in the courtroom as an advocate for one side or the other. So I'm not trying to say it's the in-all, be-all, to be on the Court of Appeals or ultimately maybe the Supreme Court. But I want people to have that opportunity to know that they're qualified and they should apply and start to envision themselves as an appellate judge or a Superior Court judge and not be frightened of it. You just referenced yourself as someone folks can look to uh, for some representation on the bench. And Is this right? You were both the first African-American woman to sit on the San Francisco Superior Court and the first to sit on the First District Court of Appeal? That's correct. Yes. That I mean, that seems like it shouldn't be, right? No. 2002, it should be. When I was first appointed in San Francisco, no. Or in, um, what was it, 2020? No. Not to say that there were not others who were before me who should have been here. In fact, I owe so much to um, LaDoris Cordell out of Santa Clara. There was a woman who was a public defender. Her name was Estella Dooley, who, who should have been on the bench. The late Shelley Drake should have been the first African-American woman appointed to the bench. And I can say Chloe Hewlett, Judy Johnson. I can name so many names. 
and I'm probably not doing justice by because I'm leaving so many out. They were the pathway. They did the path for me, and I reap the benefits of their hard labor to be appointed to the bench. And I don't want to see that happen again where there are so many who are qualified, but because of circumstances and, you know, not knowing what's going on or being in the right club or something like that, that they did not um, sit on the bench because California would have been much richer by having their presence. But I am very thankful that they paved the way for me. And I'm hoping that I'm continuing that work for others, that it will not be 20 years for another African-American woman or a woman of color to be sitting here in the first district or for that matter in San Francisco. I think that when I was appointed in 2002, the next African-American woman who was appointed was Monica Wiley. And I think that was seven years later. We shouldn't have that gap because we all are qualified. We all should apply. Can you speak a little bit to what that experience was like for you of being the first more than once? I mean, did it in any way inform your desire to get involved in this mentorship program years later? Oh, absolutely. Why? Because I don't, I guess it's a privilege. Well, I don't know if it's a privilege. Saying the first, we should be past that. Here we are in 2023. So I just want to get rid of that title of being the first black woman or the first this that it's just, it's going to be the norm, not the exception. I want us to be the rule, not the exception to the rule. So that is what comes with it when you hear the word first. People will think, oh, you're the exception to the rule, when in fact it shouldn't be that way. Was it a challenge when I first started as a Superior Court judge? Yes, it was. It was a challenge, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it or deny it. Many thought that I was there to satisfy a quota or to, and that maybe my credentials were not as qualified or um, the same as some of my colleagues. And so you have that kind of um, tension that goes on. By the time I was appointed to the first district, that tension had long passed. My body of work spoke for itself. I had done everything throughout my court, ultimately the presiding judge of my court, one of the largest courts in the state. I served on judicial council. I was on the Cal Crim Committee. I was one of 16 judges, and I was the most junior of the 16 judges to go off to Riverside to deal with the backlog. So at that point, there was nothing to prove. And so it changed from 2002 to 2020. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that transition was like for you in other ways, uh, going from a trial court to an appellate court judge. Was it an adjustment in terms of what you were listening for in hearings, sharing the bench with colleagues? What was that like? I'm glad you asked that question. It's a great question because most people think being on the Court of Appeals is a very lonely job. Um, what do I do? I read a lot of cases. I read transcripts. We're writing. But to be honest with you, as a trial judge, you're in your own courtroom. You're in your own silo. You're doing evidence, you're taking testimony, you're making rulings. A lot of times the issue will come up and you have maybe five minutes to run down the hallway, try to talk to your colleague to get input so you can go back onto that bench and make a decision. But you're really in that courtroom by yourself. Being on the Court of Appeals, you're working with First District, our divisions are, we have five and there are four appellate justices. We're always in and out of each other's chambers. 
you're writing your opinions and you're circulating it to your colleagues and you're getting input. And it's very deliberate. It's well thought out. It's not done in five minutes. And I have a lot more input, a lot better prepared. In fact, if you will allow me, I I look at the following. When you're in a trial court, you're in an emergency room position, trying to take care of justice. You're trying to get it done quickly and you hope you're doing it right because you don't have 90 days to make a decision. Then we send it up to the Court of Appeal, and I look at us as kind of the cosmetic surgeons. We're trying to straighten it out, trying to do deal with justice. And then maybe it goes up to the Supreme Court where that's the plastic surgeons, where they can really work on it and get it fine-tuned and make it look pretty. That's how I look at it. You know, I was an emergency room physician in the courts. Now I'm up here in the Court of Appeal where I have more time and more input from my colleagues. And then, of course, it goes up to the Supreme Court. Before you took the bench, you had a lot of trial experience, and you were just talking about mentoring others and making the decision about whether to become a jurist yourself. You were a prosecutor who specialized in sexual assault and domestic violence for a number of years. You also worked as a litigator at ORIC. So I was wondering, do you ever miss lawyering? And do you think that your experience as a lawyer affects to this day how you conduct yourself on the bench? You know, that's a good question, too. You know, and and let's add on. I was also the head of homicide, first woman and first woman of color to head that division. So trust me, I've seen all kind of trials and I don't miss the autopsies. Okay, (laughs) but the trials. Oh, my gosh. I fortunately I as an assistant district attorney, I tried a number of cases from homicides to the first felony elder abuse case in the state of California was um a child had beaten a parent, and that was exciting. At ORC, I was hired to try cases all over the country. So I had the benefit of going into various courtrooms and trying cases everywhere and learning different courtroom cultures, so to speak. And that was exciting. There was a part of me when I was appointed, I had tried five civil cases around the country that year. I was one tired person and I thought, you know, maybe trial work is like an athlete. You have just so much you can give. And, and, but then again, I was, I had a pretty intense practice at the time. Trial work, you're an advocate for one side. Now, when I was a prosecutor, I was an advocate for the people. When I became a civil attorney and I was doing white collar defense work and various other, I was advocating for my client. That, you know, going at it and being civil, but still being aggressive and and trying to do the best for your client. That's what's required of all of us. Being a judge, and this is the beauty of, for me, I'm still an advocate, believe it or not, even as an appellate justice. But instead of advocating for one side or the other, my advocacy is trying to be fair, impartial, make those decisions based on the law and to the best of my ability. Of all the advocacy that I've ever done, being a DA to a civil attorney, that is the hardest one and the oath that I had taken. And that's something I have to remind myself, work at every day. I remember Judge Cordell, one of my first panel discussions, she said, can you be fair? You know, and I just got appointed as a judge. And I said, of course I can be fair. And she laughed. I remember that. I can, we were at Stanford at a panel and she was the moderator. And as those decisions and those cases come before you, 
and the difficulty. I now understand what she's saying about being fair. That means being able to check your emotions at the door, not look to the left, look to the right to see where the political tide is going. Wow, if I make this decision, will the people hate me? Will the commentators say something? Will I not get confirmed as for a court of appeal or will someone challenge me as a trial judge? That is a difficult, hard, and I have to remind myself. So that's the difference of being an advocate for fairness and not be swayed by politics. Because that, to me, is very sacred, that we are an independent judiciary. That must be really challenging to sort of shut all that out, especially sort of with the fever pitch things are hitting these days. You know, I remember once in one of my very first decisions that I had written, and it's the write of an attorney, the opinions out there, and they wrote an editorial about it, and they raked my decision over the coal. And that's their right. And you have to have a thick skin. Fortunately, I was right. You know, the Supreme Court agreed with me. But, you know, you really do have to have a thick skin and, and remind yourself of why you're here. And this is something that I remember at our new judges orientation. And this is back in 2002 when I was appointed. And I remember learning about a judge. It was a judge down in Los Angeles. And this is during the 70s. He ruled that the school district was um, was segregated, de facto segregated, and ordered the schools to be integrated. And the kids had to be bused. He received such hostility that, in fact, he was up for election and he could have deferred his decision until after he was elected as a Superior Court judge. But time was of the essence. The longer the school district stayed segregated, the more kids that were being impacted. He remembered his duty. That was the most important thing for him to do, was to make that decision, not based on the political tide of people in the city at the time, but based on what the law said. And he ordered the children to be bused and the schools to be integrated. He lost that election. A job, a position, a role that he really worked hard for. He knew that it was so important for him. He loved his job as a judge so much that he was willing to lose the election because he was living up to his duty. I want to be like that judge. You are presiding judge of your division. And uh, you also served as presiding judge in San Francisco Superior Court. And in that role, you implemented uh, case management orders that are now used throughout California. You also served, as you mentioned, on a special team that significantly reduced criminal case backlog in Riverside. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your case management philosophy. And because our listeners are lawyers, what can attorneys do to aid judges and justices in case management? Well, the the case management dealt with when I was the um, supervising judge of asbestos. And as you know, those are big cases. You have multiple defendants and you have plaintiffs who either have a serious illness or are dying from that serious illness. So to implement and try to get those cases out to trial effectively, efficiently, and hopefully rightfully, I decided we needed a case management system for both sides. Because, you know, I know that it's an old term, justice delayed is justice denied. But in that case, and in all of our cases, when you delay it, it is justice denied. So 
What did that teach me is that you can't let cases linger. I know they're complex, but you got to take them on. I know that it may be a difficult decision, but you have to because it impacts people's lives. And you got to make the decision. So from that, I took that philosophy. And when I left, I brought it over as a presiding judge in San Francisco, getting those cases out to trial because it, the parties were entitled to have their cases resolved efficiently and effectively. And that still is my philosophy. Of course, I want to be thorough. Of course, I want to make sure that I make the decisions based on the law and that I'm just not putting something together. But I also have to be appreciative that people are waiting on these decisions. So that philosophy is something that I use as a presiding judge in San Francisco Superior Court, trying to get the cases out to trial as well as, or resolved, not necessarily trial, but get them uh, resolved. But that's also what I try to do here in my division. Fortunately, I have colleagues who have that same philosophy. So it's not anything that I'm really implementing, that we all know that it's better to try to get the cases done quickly and efficiently than to let them linger. How do you do that? I mean, especially when you're dealing with a significant backlog like you were in Riverside. Well, fortunately, in First District, we don't have a backlog. <laughs> and, and so we're doing very well. In Division 5, we all know everyone's caseload. And if some caseload is starting to creep up and get a little heavier, then, of course, we all work together to um, help each other out. There's a realization that we're just not the First District and the Second District and the Third. There are six appellate districts. We're all one Court of Appeal. So if one particular district is having problems now, I'm saying now, then we all step in because it reflects on our bench, the uh, integrity of our bench, the confidence that the public will have in the Court of Appeal. And so therefore, we're all helping out so that we won't deal with backlogs. Because frankly, if there is a problem in the third district, most people don't know, or I'm not just picking the third district, or in the second district or the fifth district, most people don't know there is a problem versus they'll say, it's the Court of Appeal. So we are all one, so we should all try to help one another out. And I think that's from my philosophy of dealing with Riverside. I realized I was not a San Francisco Superior Court judge. I was a Superior Court judge of the state of California. So if that county had a backlog or that court, then it was an honor or obligation or whatever, then I'm there to help. And that's something that I keep with me all the time. And is there anything that attorneys can do to help with case management? <laughs> Stop filing so many extensions. No, <laughs> no. no the, the extensions are legit. However, there's a point in time where we realize, wait a minute, you have to get this done. And I realize you're juggling a lot of cases. What they can do, um, what they're doing right now, you know, they are filing their briefs, get to the point, make sure you're hitting all the issues. I really can't criticize the attorneys because the work has been, for the most part, very good. And one thing I, I like about the bench bar, at least in our district, they really want to hear from us. What do they like? What are they, you know, the oral arguments, briefs and so forth. And they give us great suggestions. That's why in the first district, we have the, um, many of us use tentative rulings. They like that. In my division, we use focus letters that says, hey, these are the issues that we'd like for you to address in the um, oral argument. We got all those ideas from the attorneys. So they're working with us and I welcome the opportunity 
when we have them to make it a better system. Justice Jackson, we really appreciate you speaking with us. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm, I really appreciate it. And thank you for allowing me to talk about the mentor program. One other thing, if you, you asked the question, why people are not applying to the mentor program. You know, they know that right now for the whole state, I think there's about approximately 10 appellate positions available. So people see that number and they think, well, why should I apply? There's only 10. Anytime, any place, someone can retire. Anytime, any place, someone can be elevated or go off to the federal courts because we've had some justices to do that. And that's why do not be um, dissuaded by seeing that, oh, there's only two positions in this district or 10 throughout the whole state because those numbers always change every month or every day. We'd like to thank our guest, Justice Terry Jackson. Our episode was produced by Stephen Trader. Our executive producer is Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from La 360's own Kelly Marcano. Thank you for listening.